and say, hey, Gordon. All right. So when we plan a series here at church, I'll sit down with our staff and kind of like, hey, here's, here's what the series is all about. These are all different weeks. And then I will say to them, what do you guys want? And then I'll let them pick what they want, and then I'll take what's left, which is always funny to me because sometimes somebody will preach a message that's difficult, and somebody will come up to me in a conversation in the congregation and be like, I can't believe you made James preach that. And I'm like, he picked it, you know? <laughs> so we spread this series out, and in this series we're looking at different types of literature in the Bible and trying to figure out what's the best way to read those. And when I sat down with James and Laura, they both said, I ain't doing Revelation. Darn, I was hoping they'd make the mistake of taking that. And, uh, and so I, looking at this, I thought, I don't want to do this either. And so um, I happened to run in to one of my previous professors from uh, my undergrad and then my graduate work, Dr. Gordon Ainsworth. Dr. Gordon was the head of the Bible department at William Tyndale College, where I did my undergraduate work. I ran him again at Michigan Theological Seminary, where I did my graduate work. And I thought, if I can get him to come and preach Revelation... That would be excellent. And here we are, right? And so um, super excited to have Dr. Gordon with us today. Uh, when I think of my favorite teacher from school, I think of him. And I was here for first service. It was a huge blessing. So they're all yours, sir. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. You know, Mike asked me to come and speak here at Faith. Usually, you know, there's the, there's the, the teacher and the student relationship but when I met him and he asked me to do this it became the student teaching the teacher and it goes like this uh, he asked me to come and of course I jumped at the chance and uh, well I learned one more time you look before you leap <laughs> he then proceeded to tell me that he does this these summer things these different things during the during the summer rather than what goes on around the year and uh, he, I said, what are you doing this summer? He said, well, we're doing a series on hermeneutics. And I said, oh, good, how to study the Bible. And he says, yeah, he said, what I want you to do is I want you to take uh, the hermeneutics of apocalyptic literature, <laughs> teach it, and then do a sermon on it. You got 35 minutes. <laughs> so as I told him first service, at that moment I felt like, well, if I could go back to college and go back to his seminary, I'd change his grades. <laughs> he would never get out. But basically, people, uh, it's been a lot of fun being here, the first service and being here with you folks. Uh, please understand this, the big, big terms like hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just a, the science and the art of interpretation. We interpret things every day. We interpret the weather. Uh, we interpret the uh, politics that are going on. We interpret how the business is going. We, we always do interpretation. What we're looking at is the interpretation of literature. And you know, the Bible is literature. We want to ask the question of what, you know, what, what kind of vocabulary does the author use? How, do, how does he use that vocabulary? Uh, what kind of grammar is he using? Um, basically, we want to, uh, as Christians, we want to ultimately come to the conclusion there, there is a theological lesson for us in this whatever we're studying. And um, our responsibility ultimately as Christians is not only to be able to understand the literature and get some head knowledge, 
But we also want to be able to get some heart knowledge. Because the Bible is designed to change our life. See, basically, my, 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 my thinking is information without application leads to evaporation. You'll never remember it. So when we read the Bible, ultimately and finally, will you close it? You may say, what in the world did I just read? Some of it's going to be like Paul's letters. Oh, I got that part. I got that down. And then tomorrow's lesson is in the book of Leviticus. Anybody read Leviticus lately? If you have insomnia, try the first three chapters. You'll be out like a light. Unless you understand that that's God's word. And within God's word, he wants to communicate to you and me. So we want to, have, we want to understand the art and the science of Bible study. You know, we always get to hear words. Uh, between now and the end of November, we're going to hear a lot of words from a lot of people. We're even beginning to hear them now. They come in those little flyers. They first of all start that way, and then there's TV ads. And then once we determine who the candidate is for the Democrats and the Republicans, the independents, or whatever, then we're going to have those individuals, and we're going to hear, hear a lot more from each individual about what they're going to do and how we're going to feel after they do it. And I think that is so sweet. Because, <laughs> because the, what you've got to do, we, we have to learn how to listen to their voices and then interpret what they're going to say. Um, the problem is you don't have to be 100 years old to realize that our culture is filled with broken promises and crushed dreams. And then you ask yourself, is that all there is? That's the big issue. It, it, is that all there is? Because when you think about it, you get down to the end, there's not a whole lot to look back on, is there? When you uh, get this word from people, we have to remember that basically our culture is looking for three different things. We're looking for, first of all, significance in life. Who am I? What am I doing here? Where am I going? How will I know when I get there that I, that's where I'm supposed to be? But I want to know who I am. The second question is, uh, do I feel not only significant, do I feel safe in this world? And you know from what you've seen in the last 20 years, there's no place that is safe at all. There just isn't. If I, if I hadn't, I have a degree in uh, aerospace engineering. Um, my father told me I took up a lot of air and space. But the, the fact is, folks, it, you know, if I had something different to do besides ministry, I'd have gone into the security business. Because everybody wants to know how to keep their stuff. And so we want to make our stuff safe, don't we? And boy, that's a, it's a big business today. And you, you, safety is what we want. We want to be significant. I want, I want to be somebody. I want to be loved. I want to feel secure. But also, I want to feel satisfied. I want my life to ultimately end up in joy. I want to find out how every day I can have a Disney World experience. That, that, that's where we're going. That's what it's all about. So we have this culture trying to fill this, these, these, these voids of significant security and satisfaction. And then now we have another word. 
Another word that doesn't come from what we get in our culture. In World War II, my father was in, in Italy during World War II, and he told me about how Mount Vesuvius exploded, and it continued to explode, and he, would, he shared with me how, it was, as disastrous as it was, it was spectacular to watch. What we have in the Bible is not an explosion, not an eruption, but an eruption, an IRR, a breaking in, a God outside of this world who breaks into this world and gives us his word. And so now we've got two voices, the culture, the voice of the culture, and the voice of the word of God. And every single day, people, is a test for you and me as to how we're going to live and how we're going to deal with this. And the problem is, as, we, as time goes on, you know, we get a glimpse of eternity. Just at the end of the book, it tells us what life is going to be like. Not a whole lot. I have a lot of questions. But it does tell us. You start in Genesis, and the first two chapters are pretty good, but you hit chapter 3, and sin enters in, and so does Satan. And it goes all the way through to Revelation 20. And then Revelation 21 and 22 help us understand it ain't always going to be this way. Pardon my French. It's not going to always be this way. The question is then, how do I understand that? And what can help me understand how it's not always going to be the way it is? And how do I get there in one piece? Because you see, people, the, the stuff of life, where it, it starts out with great promise. But most of it comes along, and those great promises fall flat. How do I feel? What am I doing? You know, something comes along and wrestles life away from you. You know, pain can do that, can it? Not just physical pain, but emotional pain. And ultimately, too, spiritual pain. And what starts out with great joy, it ends up being very difficult. When death cuts off the life of one that we would say, oh, that they died too short. You know, you ask yourself these questions. Is, is that all there is? is? Is that what life was all about? We want something that will give us promise and we can be guaranteed it will take place. My wife suffered. We were, she was 71 when she went to be with the Lord. And she suffered all those 71 years. She says, I have this lupus from, seven, from the time I came out of the womb until by the time I hit the tomb. And you know, it was promises of God that kept her going. I'll never forget one time, you ever had shingles? Nasty disease. Her shingles were in her esophagus, in her stomach, and all throughout her lungs. Very tough just to breathe, much less talk. She was in isolation for 30 days one time, and I, I was just prayed with her, and I I couldn't kiss her, I couldn't touch her, but I bent down to say goodnight and whisper in her ear. And she just stopped and she grabbed my hand and she says, I can't wait to get a new body. And I'll never forget that. That was 30 years ago. And she says, I can't wait to get a new body. People, she had hope even then. 
Well, thank you very much. I haven't had one of those in a long time. <laughs> right on, brother. Save it for the end. Okay, now. <laughs> thank you. I, I really appreciate this, okay? But, you know, but, but it's the promise of what God has said that kept her going. That's what gave her hope, even in the hospital bed. And it's the words of Scripture that keep us going when life comes unglued. And what we want to look at today is the end, Revelation 21 and 22. And what I'd like to do is help you understand just a little bit about how to approach these books that talk about the end. A book like Daniel, I'm sure if you've studied prophecy a little bit, you read the book of Daniel. In the book of Ezekiel and, and some passages in Isaiah. But then you come to the book of Revelation and you want to pull your hair out. And I'm going bald in the back here and that's what's been happening. I'm reading Revelation and I'm going like this. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. But I want to help you understand something. When you study the end, and study of the end times is called eschatology. And eschatology, God gives us this to encourage us to keep going from here until the end. Whether the end is death now, or the end is when he comes and we're still alive. The issue is for believers to keep going. The Bible is designed to work in us with the words that it gives us. Eschatology is designed, first of all, to encourage us to keep going, even though life may stink. And I'm sure every one of you in here has got something that's wrong. It's not 100%. And you've got to keep going, keep going, keep going. It's designed to do three things. It gives us his eschatology, and it helps us look forward to the time that he will come back, but it, it encourages us that he is coming back. But it also finally ends up in ethics, how we're supposed to live. If you and I really do believe that Jesus Christ is coming back, we must be ready for him, and we must be demonstrating to the rest of the world that he's alive, that there's, no, there's a tomb in Jerusalem that is empty. It's the whole point. The point is the tomb is empty. Why? Because God emptied it, and he's going to empty ours. So as we approach the book of Revelation, and we come to this word apocalyptic, the word apocalyptic simply means to unveil. And what God does in Revelation 21 and 22, if this is his word, he unveils for us how it's all going to end. It really doesn't tell us a whole lot, but I'll tell you what, it's a whole lot better than what we got now. And it's governed by him. And I want to give you a couple of principles, first of all, five of them. And so the first principle is this. First principle is this. There we go. That's the first principle. There we go. All right. Here we, uh, here, here's what I want you to grasp. First of all, apocalyptic literature normally reads like a story and, or a narrative, and it has a forward movement that looks toward the end times for both salvation and for judgment. So it's gonna, apocalyptic literature, wherever it, when it was written, it looks ahead all the way to the end. It tells us there's going to be an end. There's going to be a time of judgment, and there's going to be a time of salvation for those who have placed their trust in the living God through Jesus Christ. That's, it, it focuses on that. And it tells us how it's going to get there. 
So keep in mind, people, it's going to read like a story. And let, let me encourage you to read, like, uh, just read Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, really the five principles that I'm going to give you are all encompassed in Daniel 7. Not all apocalyptic literature has this, but Daniel 7 does. It reads, it reads like a, a story. It starts out from, where, from Daniel's day and says there's going to be some kingdoms that will come along, and then there's going to be a kingdom that will come from heaven and it'll be established forever. That's, that's the chapter 7. Half of the chapter, Daniel understands. He sees these, he sees these things. But he doesn't know what they mean, but he sees these things. And then he has a visitor come along who interprets that for us and says, Daniel, the end is really going to be neat. Stick with it. So keep in mind, it moves like a story, okay? Second of all, this literature, it does something else. It includes the element of supernatural revelation. You, you know, you, you ever read prophecy like Book of Hosea or Jeremiah, in particular Jeremiah? It's, it, it, it's, 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 he's a prophet, but he talks about things in his culture and in his time. And, and God says that, that there's going to become judgment. The Assyrians are going to come down, and the Israelites are not going to like it. And the, he's, the, some of the Assyrians are going to take the Israelites back to their, their country and scatter them all around. He says, because what they've done is wrong. And when you come to this kind of literature, there's, it's all taking place on a horizontal level. It's working with people and events. Apocalyptic literature gives us a picture of the future, but it does it in a different way. It comes top down. It comes from out of heaven and breaks into our culture so that we can understand this, that there is a sovereign God who's in control of the nonsense in our culture. And one day, he's going to bring it to an end. You ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Yeah. Thy kingdom, what? Come. Come from where? Thy kingdom come from heaven to earth. We have this picture of we're going to go to heaven and float around on clouds playing harps or that oversized violin. What's that thing? A cello. That cello is... One of, I think sometimes the violins, they, they put them in a microwave and it just bursts up. But anyways, it, 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 you know, it's going to be, it, it's stuff that's going to be unveiled about the future and it helps us understand what's down there and that there's a sovereign God really governing this. This is not out of control. Now, it may feel like that. Remember, Daniel, how did Daniel ever get to Babylon? Daniel's with mommy and daddy over in Israel and the Babylonians came down, and the Babylonians ripped him away from his mother and father and all his friends and said, you're going with us. And they took him to Babylon, and that's where he was for 70-some years. He never saw the promised land again. And neither did a bunch of Israelites. Well, you know as well as I do, God promised the Israelites the promised land. So all of a sudden, it looks like, well, maybe God's not as powerful as they said he was. Maybe he really didn't bring our people through the Red Sea. Maybe that's just a story to tell us a little about imagination about this God that claims to be our God. Because life was tough in Babylon. They were whipped from their homes. Families were torn apart for 70 years. And the question is, is this God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is he worth worshiping? And you see, Daniel says, Oh, yeah. 
He says, listen, we're, 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 we're out of our land because we're the ones that has the problem, not God. He, just ha- he has to discipline us. Remember, God, God blesses his people when they obey. He disciplines his people when they disobey, but he never disowns his own. And he's not going to disown his own. He will bring them back one day. And that's what Daniel's all about, how they will get back to the promised land. But they've got to wait until he do. And you must, maybe you might have to die in faith, waiting for that to happen. But the issue is the promises are still good and valid. And that's what's happening. It's telling us that there's a sovereign God ruling over everything. Third. It was written in times of severe crisis for God's people to encourage their faith in the Lord. And that's just what I was getting at with this whole idea of God governing and ruling over his promises and bringing them to a fulfillment or a completion. God's program will be fulfilled. Think with me for a minute. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Oh, we know that. We know we created Adam and Eve. We know that Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God was in the garden. And things were hunky-dory, weren't they? They had the opportunity to fellowship with the God of Scripture, the God of everything, the one who created it all. The problem enters in chapter 3 when Satan comes along. And what he does is he messes things up by challenging them as to who has the right to be worshipped. Is it this God Yahweh, or is it me? And he tricks them, tempts them, and they fall into sin. So the question now is, God's created this Adam and Eve. He told them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The original intent of Adam and Eve was to have babies, and their kids to have kids. And their kids and their kids to have kids and to have kids and go on and fill the earth with so that his glory would be reflected through the people that worship him. The problem is that was messed up in Genesis 3. So the question is from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20 is will this program ever be finished? Because you see, God's character is at stake in all of this. Is he worthy to be worshiped? And that's the whole story of the Bible. How God redeems a corrupt people, humanity. How he redeems different people all the way through. Those that turn to him are his. See, you want to be significant? You don't have to go out and do stuff. All you have to do is John 1.12. For the one who places their trust in him, he gives them the right to become a child of God. What could be better than being a child of God? Nothing. So what has happened here is that there's a revelation that this whole program will not always be present, but one day it will come to conclusion. Number four, in when you read apocalyptic literature like Revelation, there's going to be an otherworldly being who comes along and does the interpretation. When Daniel saw these four creatures. I go back to chapter 7. There's four different creatures he sees, and the last one is a nondescript, awful, awful beast. And eventually he gets clobbered, and God sets up his kingdom. And Daniel says, what's going on? 
And God sends an angel to interpret for Daniel what those beasts all represented and how those beasts will get clobbered and how God wins. And don't you want to be on a winner's side? I mean, we wish the tigers would read this stuff, but it, 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 it's just not going to happen, folks, so stick with it. But there's an otherworldly being that comes along and does this. It helps us, helps Daniel, and in our case, John, to understand what's going on as he writes the book of Revelation. He's writing down what he sees, and then he gets an interpreter. What a deal. God loves us. And then fifth, the last thing is this. And this is the tough one. Apocalyptic literature uses imagery and symbolism throughout. And this is often accompanied by the interpretation from the divine guide. Now, I say often accompanied. Sometimes it uses, it uses images and symbols. and doesn't say what they are. But... If you've been doing what you should be doing once a year, you will eventually understand. Let me, I, I beg you, read through the Bible in a year. Start in January, start today, and start reading through the Bible in a year. Because a, a lot of stuff in the New Testament is all figured from the Old Testament. And Revelation carries a lot of material from the Old Testament because the Old Testament is about God's kingdom. And Revelation explains for us that that kingdom is going to come, and here's how and why it's going to come. So those five things, don't get frustrated by Revelation or any other book of the Bible. If you don't understand it, that's okay. That's why God gave us, one, the Holy Spirit, and two, teachers of the Scriptures. That's why I take a guy like Mike and train him in Greek and Hebrew and then turn him loose with you people. He's desi it's designed for you to learn God's Word. Why? So that you can take God's Word in your heart and then use it. It's going to turn into ethics. It will teach you how to live. So once we do that, what I'd like to do is take, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, we're going to briefly look at the first five verses. Because apocalyptic literature asks a question. It forces you and me to ask a question. Is this all there is? You, you, we're going to go out, we're going to turn on the internet, we're going to turn on the TV, and it's going to blast us with images. And it's going to tell us, this is what's happening. That's not the question. Is that all we got? And our politicians, and our teachers, and our professors, and our scientists, and our medical people are all trying to figure out all the various problems of life. You start looking at all those things. Good grief, Gertrude. I was out, I was out the other night with, a, with two doctors, and we were sitting talking. I was more doing more listening. All the nasty stuff that's floating around out there that we haven't got a clue what to do with. And that's just in the medical field. Now, the good thing is we are also getting our roads fixed, as was promised, but we'll leave that one alone. But the, the fact is we're always trying to solve a problem. And God says, listen, trust me, it's all going to get solved. The issue is, do you know me and follow me? 
I don't care what you do in life. You do, you do what you love doing. If, if I, like I said, if I couldn't do this, I think I'd go into the locksmith business. Gratefully, I'm at the other end of all of this and living on social security like everybody else. Now, I feel very social today and I'm very secure. Um, because of the, anyways, we'll stop with that. But think about it. See, apocalyptic literature answers the question, is this all there is? And it comes out with a resounding no. That's the beauty of this. Look at, look at the first verse of Revelation 21, verses 1. Well, let's read verses 1 to 5. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell with them, and shall be, they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, nor shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Look, God's going to do something. He is the one who's going to transform the world, the present world, so that his people might be transformed themselves and enjoy a relationship with him forever. That's what happened in Genesis 1. That's one of, chapters 1 and 2. God created Adam and Eve to have a relationship with him. It is Adam and Eve who mess things up and throw Satan in there for good measure. The starting point, people, God says, is listen, I want you to understand something. It's not always going to be this way. That's the beauty of this people. When people say, is that all there is? The answer is no. Look what he just told us. And if you read particularly 21 and 22, and you watch what God does, keep it in the back of your mind. There's an incredible divine initiative. God does all this. God does the speaking. This is not government. This is not medicine. This is not physics. It's, it's, it's God of the scriptures doing something for his people. Now, let's take a look at a couple of things here because we need transformation. And first of all, we have divine promise of a new place prepared by God himself. Look at this, verses 1 and 2. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This, these words, people, when you read about a new heaven and a new earth, it's not just Revelation 21. This comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 65. And Isaiah writes for us, and, and God is speaking to Isaiah, and he's, God says to Isaiah, I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth. God says, I'm going to do it. And this is 700 years before Christ. And now, about 50 years, 60 years after the time of Christ, John says, not only did I hear about the new heavens and the new earth through the scriptures of Isaiah, he says, I got to see it. 
See, this, this transcends the reality that we see. It's real, but it's not accessible to the five senses. Yet. The little word yet is critical. John says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Something new is out there and is prepared by the God of the Bible. This is the God who continues to guide history to ending points. This is the God of the Bible who Jesus Christ, death on the cross, satisfied the wrath of God for you and me. But it's also the God who raised Jesus from the dead. There's a tomb in Jerusalem that is empty. One of my jobs at Highland Park was really exciting. Um, I did mainly funerals. And I've done well over 375 of them. And every one of those people were dead. Every one of them. And we put them into a grave somewhere. There's a tomb in Jerusalem, people, that has got an empty body. Why? God did it. Because he loved his son. And what his son did was buy for him, buy on his death on the cross, he bought for him a company of people, you and me, if we placed our trust in him, that one day we'll also have an empty tomb with a new body. I love that. That's what excited my wife, even as sick as she was. You notice what he says here. I saw a new heaven, new earth, the first heaven, the first earth have passed away. There's no longer any sea. In the old, in the old, particularly the Old Testament, even up to Jesus' day, but in the Old Testament, you know, it tells us the, the sea was a place that was feared by the Israelites. Not only the Israelites, but by the culture of all of these times. The sea was a place that was, you know, the depths of the sea, you can't get to the bottom of the Mediterranean. Now, of course, we can. But for them, they couldn't get to the bottom of the Mediterranean without dying. It was a place of terror. The demons lived in there. Remember when Jesus cast the demons out of that one person? That, that There was 4,000 and these pigs, and these pigs got the demons put in them, and they all went where? They went to the ocean. Why? Because bingo, that's where the demons live. And God says, everything that causes pain and is a threat to life will be removed in this new heaven and new earth. I don't know about you, but I can't wait. Look what he says about this in verse 2. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. There's an old Jerusalem. John says, you know, I, I used to live down there, walk with Jesus and with, the, with, with my other 11 buddies, and we, we'd follow him around. There's Jerusalem. There's a new Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem simply means Yerushalem. Yeru or Ir is, in Hebrew, city. Yerushalem is shalom, peace, the city of peace. Now peace will really come. The UN cannot do what God is going to do. He's going to give us a new city. He says, coming down out of heaven, it's coming down out of heaven to here. We're going to live on the earth for eternity. We're not going to heaven and floating around on clouds playing, playing the cellos and violins and harps. We're not going to do that. We're going to be here on the earth together as God's people. He says, comes out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Went to a wedding last week, two weeks ago. 
And the bride came down, and she looked beautiful. I knew this girl from when she was in high school. Gorgeous girl, waiting for her husband's up here, and you know, they got the guys coming out, all the girls, all the girls, the bridesmaids, I guess whatever you call them. The bridesmaids are over here. And down she comes with her daddy. Beautiful white dress. But I think she went to McDonald's beforehand because there's a blotch of ketchup right down the center here. Now, I'm only kidding. There was no blotch of ketchup. But you get, you get the point. When you see a bride come down, she's gorgeous. Why? Because that dress is pure and white. Prepared for the husband. That's what he says here. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. No blotch of ketchup. No stain of mustard. No axle grease. She comes down, she's beautiful. And God says, I prepared this for my people. See, we go, we go to cities and we try to make cities work and then we die and the next group comes along and they try to make cities work and they die. He does the work here. God prepared this. You see, the promise we have is, people, a new place for eternity. And it's prepared by God himself. That's the divine initiative in this work. Look what he says second. Verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. We have his promise of his eternal presence. You know, with Adam and Eve in the garden, it must have been unbelievable to be able to go to the God of the universe with anything and everything that you want to ask or to have supplied for who you are and what you needed. And then Satan says, has God really said you won't die? Well, let's think this one through, Adam. And the two of them talked about it. And of course, Eve ate the fruit. Simple eating of a piece of fruit. And they gave to her husband, who was standing there, who should have been guarding her from the foolishness of Satan. But they didn't, they, they listened to the words, but the wrong words, because there was immediate relief. Are you hungry? Here's a piece of fruit. Try it out. Not, they didn't say to themselves, well, we shouldn't be doing this. Let's not do it. And what happened is they listened to the wrong voice. Whose voice are you listening to? And God says, I will be with them and they shall be with me. In verse 3, and he shall dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself shall be with them. From, from, from that garden to the next place where God dwells with his people is in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then the tabernacle of the wilderness to the, to the permanent structure called the temple. God was dwelling in that place called the Holy of Holies. If you go read on in chapter 21 a little bit, you'll discover this new Jerusalem is a big cube. So high, so wide, so deep, and it forms a cube. Why? Because you see, in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a 45-foot-long structure, but the Holy of Holies was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. Why? 
That's where God dwelled. He dwells in perfection. And that's what he's got prepared for you and me. He's got a place that is perfect. And it will be life that is perfect. What an incredible promise of being in his presence. And these bodies will be changed. If you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, people, you've got to realize when, when, when you did that, everything changed about you. You became regenerated. You became justified, sanctified, glorified. You name it. The only thing that hasn't changed is what? The body. And my wife, I told you, she said, I can't wait to get a new body. She knew what it would be to shed this thing. I told her one day, I can't wait to get a new body. And she said, neither can I. Anyways, meaning she wanted mine to be changed. Anyways, <laughs> I knew I needed to interpret that one for you, but that's okay. So we have the promise of his eternal presence. But look at verse 4. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Wow, he's going to satisfy me forever. He wants to do it now. He wants to provide in my heart satisfaction in a world that is crying out, saying, you need this, you need this. Do you realize, people, you will save yourself ten dollars to $12,000 if you listen to the Scriptures. You don't, as a family of four, have to go to Disney World for a week. You don't have to. You're looking at a 75-year-old man who's never been to Disney World. Now, I must admit, I went to Disneyland, but that's when we got married and Disney World wasn't around. And we spent four and a half hours there. We saw Bear, 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 Bear Tracks Jamboree and a couple other things, and that was about it. I've had enough. But the fact is, people, you can make it without a lot of stuff in life. Because remember, you're going to leave it behind. There's no U-Haul behind the hearse. You're going to leave it behind. How much stuff do you want to leave behind? See, the only thing you can send ahead is one, is one of two things. There's two things that are going to last, the Word of God and people. Pour yourself into the lives of people. And then number four, here we go. In light of all these things, we need to look at verse five. Verse five says this. The one who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Now, he gives us a picture of this new heavens and new earth. He tells us in this new heavens and new earth, there'll always be the presence of God. He says, that one, In this new heavens and new earth, I'm going to remove all the causes for misery. So, here's the deal. In verse 5, everything I've said to you, I am faithful and true. Now the call to faith. Can I trust this God who has said these things and will do these things? Can I trust him to do it? Because if he doesn't do it, he's unfaithful and he's not true and therefore he's not worthy of my worship. And if he isn't, why do you come to church? See, he's, he's worthy of his worship. Have you ever, let me just ask you, if you've ever, have you ever prayed in your life, in your whole life, have you ever prayed and had one answer to prayer? Just one. You see, if God was faithful there, then he's faithful in the rest. I may not see it. I am not omniscient. 
I'm not omnipresent, but I can trust a God who is omniscient and who is omnipresent. See, I know that my wife no longer is in pain. She's with him now forever. She will get a new body at the resurrection. And the best thing about it is people, I, uh, there are moments when I have to say, Lord, thank you for Tammy. And then I have to realize, would she rather be with the Lord or with the Gord? And I know the answer to that question. She'd rather be with him. Do I miss her? I miss her terribly. Am I grateful she's with him? You know, folks, nothing is ever lost if you know where it is. Isn't that right? How many times did I say to my wife, where are my keys? She said, well, there's somewhere in the house. Well, that's good. I, they're not lost, evidently. They are to me, but she, she had it down. You see, people, here's what we have to do. We must learn to rest in the divine assurance based on God's own word. He says, these things I'm telling you, in particular the first four verses here, these things are faithful and true. They, re they go back to his character. And you realize that what the living God of the universe has done with all of us in here, he's given us the privilege of demonstrating to the watching world out there He's faithful and he's true. He's not asking us to be perfect. We're not perfect. We're Christians. But we are progressive. We want to continue to learn of him, know of him, trust in him. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's failure. And there will be failure until you change this mortality <laughs> into immortality. But everything God says is, listen, you're going to trust me. I want you to be secure with me. Let me end it with this idea. This idea is this. Learn the hope of our glorious future. Let it do something to you. Let the hope of our glorious future encourage you to live godly and faithfully for Jesus Christ in our present chaotic culture. It hates him. It does not like righteousness. But God loves his people when they're righteous. He knows about pain. You know, I love Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus Christ learned obedience through the things that he suffered. What does that mean? See, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And he understood our pain because you see what he did was he obeyed the Father. And he suffered as a human being, fully human. And in his suffering, he understands what it is to obey what the Father has to say so that he can then do what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. He can sympathize with us. That's the God we have who will take us from here at this very moment all the way to the end, whether the end is his, his return or the end is our own physical death. He is with us every step of the way. That's what this is all about. Apocalyptic literature is designed to use images and symbols, yes, but it's designed to give us an idea about the hope of our glorious future. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. And the way to do it is to get into the scriptures, absorb what God has, and you've got to do it, people, together. My, I will close with this. I know I've gone over time, but I'll close with this. My, for 15 years, 
at Highland Park Baptist Church as a pastor uh, when Tammy was basically at home and then ultimately in bed. For 15 years, every Tuesday and every Friday, there was a meal in the refrigerator for us by the people of Highland Park. Somebody took it on themselves, and this was before the time of using computers to get all that stuff done. And people, we got some great cooks over there, by the way. But anyways, what I want you to grasp is you, you need to live life as a unit, as a community. You know, Brother Mike talked about this picnic, picnic you got coming up. Go to the picnic. Introduce yourself to others. You need other believers. The whole book of Hebrews is about don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We grow together and we're going to live together. And that's how you make it through pain. You do it together. Let the glorious hope we've got, Peter, the glorious future, let that encourage you to live faithfully and righteously for our Father and for the glory of Jesus Christ in a culture that desperately needs him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for just these four simple verses. But thank you that it's your word, it's true, that life is not easy, Lord, and we long for the day, instead of longing for the stock market to go up, instead of longing for the new house to be built or the, the trip we might take, Lord Jesus, we want to long for you to know you right now and so that we can be ready for you when you return. Let our, let our eschatology, Lord, work in us to ultimately breed ethics where we exude who you are because we know we have a grand and glorious future. It's in Jesus' matchless name we pray. For Jesus' sake and Jesus' glory, amen.